350 BC, Aristotle wrote what was probably the most definitive work that would stand the test of times for generations, trying to understand what causes things to happen. His causality dilemma work and metaphysics and all of the other uh, works and philosophy that he did really was the foundational stone for much of the last 2,000 years. Men like Hume and Kant used his work to to kind of understand the world we live in. And the causality dilemma is something that you're familiar with and you've probably used often in your life. Does Y cause X or does X cause Y? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Causality is important. It's important to understand what causes what. Is there correlation between certain things? If I do this, what will happen as a result of it? Or or what was the result of this happening to me? The causality dilemma is important for us to think about. What causes evil in the world? Where does evil come from? Where does the evil around us come from? Common answers we might find might be education. They weren't educated, therefore they do bad things. Oh, it's their environment. It's the place they live. Crime doesn't happen when it's cold outside. As much as when it's hot outside. Right? Statistically, crime happens more in the summertime than it does in the wintertime. Why? People don't want to go outside and shoot people, I guess. I don't know. They do it at home. Perhaps it's circumstances that cause these things. It was the way they were brought up. It's their mom and dad or their lack of mom or dad. Perhaps Perhaps it's the company they keep. That's what causes bad things to happen to good people. They hang around with bad people. And so our solution is to take our kids perhaps out of school. You know, kids are hanging around those bad kids at the public school. Well, they're going to be bad too. And so we take our kids out thinking that all along if we send them to maybe perhaps a private school or like myself, homeschool them, oh, then there won't be the problem of sin or evil. What causes sin? Where does evil come from? This is what we hope to understand this morning as we consider Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, in verse 14. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open that Bible up to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have Pew Bibles in front of you. It's page 843 in the Pew Bible. If you're using a red Pew Bible, Charlie is about to tell us where it's at. Does he have a red one today? He doesn't have a red one today. So if you have a red one, you're on your own. If you have a black pew Bible, it is 843. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, 
His disciples asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Where does evil come from? What is the cause of evil in the world we live? What is your answer to the problem of evil? What is your answer to the problem of evil? If you're visiting with us today or haven't been here in a while, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, going just verse by verse, seeking to answer the question that Mark gives us, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth who came? Who is he? And what does it look like to follow him? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Those are really the two questions that that Mark is seeking for you and I to understand, that Jesus is the Son of God, fully man and fully God. And he came to die for sinners. And all those that are to follow him turn from their way of life and their their sin and they pursue Christ. In the weeks ahead, we're going to consider more and more what it looks like to follow this Son of God, this Son of Man. What it means to be with Jesus, to be be a Christian. What what does it mean to follow Christ? Chapter 8, we will see that It means to take up our cross and follow Him. It means to to give up our lives and to take on a new life. In the context of our passage this morning, Jesus has been dealing with false religion and false teaching. Last week we considered false religion. How religiosity ultimately leads to nothing but idolatry. That is that religion, just following religion ultimately leads to idolatry. Worship of self rather than God. Worship of man or rules rather than the God who wrote the Word. Jesus is dealing with this issue and He calls the crowd to the side and He gives them this instruction. The Pharisees are gone The religious leaders have left, and Jesus calls aside those who want to truly know what does it mean to follow Jesus. what What do we think about the law? In religion and legalism, what we find is a misunderstanding of the problem of sin. The reason why legalism is so appealing is because it does not confront evil. Meaning, the evil's out there, it's not in here. 
Evil is always at the fingertips. It's never within reach. We watch murder on TV or we hear of terrible crimes and we think, wow, the world out there is broken. Jesus radically transforms that in this passage. The fundamental problem of evil does not lie in the platitudes of external explanations like education or conditions or environment or bad company, but it is a fundamental and a universal depravity of the human heart. Total depravity of the human heart is both universal and far-reaching. It goes wide and it goes deep. Human sin isn't out there. It's in here. That's what we're going to consider this morning in Mark 7. Having a biblical understanding of human sinfulness is vital to having a relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with a holy God if you don't understand your sin. Not sins, plural, but sin. Your heart condition. That you are broken. So today we're going to think about that this morning. The need for understanding. The need for understanding. Jesus Jesus demonstrates that we need to understand some few, a few things, right? So he calls the crowd. Look at verse 14. He says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me. Listen up, he says. Listen to me. Listen up to me right now, he says. I want you to understand something. All of you listen up and understand. You've got to get this point, he says. This is a, an important point. Only two times in the Gospel of Mark do these words pop up, meaning that we might want to pay attention to them. Mark doesn't just do this casually. He doesn't just mention these things casually. But he does it to intensify and heighten the need to listen. Hey, listen up. Pay attention, he says. This is important. There's nothing outside a person. By going into him, can devile him. We need to see that sin separates us from a holy God. Habakkuk 1.13, look at that later. Your eyes are too pure to look on ho- uh, upon sinful men. Your eyes, you, God is so holy, He can't be in a relationship with sinful people. And because moral purity is essential to a relationship with God, Jesus wants us to pay attention. If we do not understand that sin separates us from a holy God, then our solution to the problem of evil will be nothing more than the things mentioned. Trying to keep better company, which isn't a bad thing. But it won't fix the problem of human sinfulness. Environment, you know, just taking the gang members and put them in a cold climate isn't going to fix their problem. No more than it's going to fix our problem. How do we deal with sin? And friends, again, I just want to highlight something about the disciples in this picture. They don't get it. They're slow. And and I highlight this every week because this is so encouraging to my heart. It should be encouraging to your heart. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not understand? It's so encouraging to see these guys who lived with Jesus not get it. 
And maybe you came this morning and you, you, you've been trying this, you've been trying to give it a shot, and, and, and you've been thinking, and you just don't get it. There's just parts of it you just can't get. You're just grasping to try to understand, what does this all mean? Well, friends, those that walked closest with Jesus, they were the same way. They struggled to understand, to, to embrace. This leads us really to see and identify our need for God, the need for illumination. Uh, we often pray in our prayer of petition. We don't call it that because we're not, you know, maybe perhaps Presbyterian. Uh, so if you go to a Presbyterian church, for example, you'll find, like, if it's a conservative Presbyterian church, they'll have a prayer of illumination in there. Some Baptists do that. We do that. I just don't call it that. But, but I'm praying, God, open our eyes to see your word. Right? The need to understand. We can't figure it out apart from God. Friend, just as your child learned slowly or is learning slowly, you know, we, we don't teach kindergartners calculus, right? We, we start small with money and we show them how money works and then and we, it's a building block for mathematics and understanding because uh, we use money every day, and, 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 and so that's why we start with money in, in kindergarten. We don't, we don't give them complex equations. They wouldn't understand. They're slow in learning. We wouldn't say they're idiots. We wouldn't say they're ignorant or foolish because they don't know how to do calculus. Well, no more than Jesus calls you a fool today. If, if you don't fully understand everything, but what Jesus wants you to understand today is your condition before God is unholy. You, your need for Christ. This is for Christian and unchristian. This is for those who follow Christ and those who don't follow Christ. You need to understand human sin. Sin lurks in our own hearts. Jesus then does two things for us. So if, there, if you're taking notes, there's just really two points to the sermon. First, Jesus exposes the foolish, ineffective use of legalism for moral purity. Jesus exposes that it's foolish and ineffective to try to create a bunch of lists for people to follow and somehow will purify their moral hearts. That the things that people will do will be changed by their behavior. Secondly, Jesus reveals that the radical, pervasive depravity of the human heart he reveals to us that, that we have a big problem on our hands. And that legalism is merely a band-aid on a flesh wound. It's a big problem that a band-aid can't fix. First, the foolish, ineffective use of legalism for moral purity. In verse 15, he says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. What is Jesus talking about? What do you mean, Jesus? That, what are we talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking fundamentally about food. About food and the things that they were eating. Now you think, well, I know my Bible a little bit. God's the one that came up with that list of food laws, isn't he? What's Jesus saying here? What, 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 what does it mean that he declares all food? What is going on here? In Leviticus 11, Jesus, or God reveals to Moses and, and to the Israelites a, a list of, of food laws, purity laws. They're part of the, the civic laws, the, the, the cultic 
rules, if you will, for how the nation of Israel was to be uh, set up and function as a people. And you wonder, okay, food laws, I get it. You know, I know Leviticus is most of your favorite chapters. Uh, you find there, you know, there's just these unending lists like you Marylanders can't eat crab, right? You know, if you're a, you, that would be out, no crab whatsoever, right? Um, no, no lobsters, were ha- no, none of those wonderful things you enjoy, right? So what's going on here? What's the deal? Why food laws? Well, what they were for was to separate the people from the nations around them. It was a visible and tangible way for the nation of Israel to look weird, right? Just as weird as a Marylander who doesn't love crab, right? I don't love crab. What do you mean? Are you from Maryland? What do you mean? Right? Uh, right? It's weird. What do you mean? Well, that's the same thing. These Canaanites began to see the Israelites and their food choices. What was at their buffets? And they said, hey, what's the deal? Why don't you eat pigs? We love those things. Man, that bacon, you fry that up. That's some good stuff. Right? I would never say that. But what's the It was about separation. It was, a, it was a picture, it was a display of God's holiness. That God was other. That God was different. That God wasn't like the people around them. And so when they didn't eat those things, people woke up and they said, wow, they took notice. They separated themselves from the world around them. And it demonstrated that they too were in need of separation from the world around them. That they were to be separate and holy as God is holy. That was the point of the food laws. But what had happened is, is the food laws turned into something completely other. The food laws became a way in which it was a mark of purity, a mark of sinlessness that it was never meant to display. That is, I'm morally pure if I don't eat this food. They were confused about what the whole thing was about, the point of the food laws. And Jesus comes and radically declares all food are clean. You don't understand, in, in the culture, this was, Jesus was shaking the world up here. He was radically transforming an entire people. And an entire people's understanding of who they were. We see in this Jesus displaying his lordship. God is come in human flesh. And God declares all food clean. Jesus declaring all food clean is equating himself with the word of God. That that Jesus actually has authority to change God's word. But Jesus isn't changing God's word. Jesus isn't saying, okay, we, we don't need those anymore. Let's just put our Old Testaments away. That's weird. Let's not use those anymore. We got the New Testament, you know, all these things. We kind of act like that sometimes. Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus is coming and fulfilling those food laws. 
In Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is satisfying the law's demands and ushering in a new covenant in which Jeremiah prophesied, I will give you a new heart. And so what we see here is that, that Jesus is declaring that all foods are clean. That is, the things outside of us aren't what defile us, it's the things inside of us. So what we need to give attention to isn't external matters, but internal matters. The early Christians struggled with this. Peter himself, who's there hearing this, struggled with that. Peter, who is most likely Mark's companion in writing this, this gospel, struggled with this. In Acts 10, we, we see uh, Peter has a vision. He falls asleep and he has this vision. And he's told in the vision to go eat. There's this whole host of food, both clean and unclean food. And, and Peter's freaked out. He's like, I can't eat that unclean stuff. I can't eat that. It's going to defile me. It's going to make me unclean. And he comes and God says, no, Peter. No, Peter. All foods are clean. Peter. Peter, come on. And we see in the midst of that, the gospel goes to Gentiles. It's in the context of that, that, that it was a barrier for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And brothers and sisters, it's fascinating here is that Mark places some stories that follow where Jesus goes to Gentiles and shares the gospel with them. Next week we'll consider that, that even dogs need to eat. We Gentile dogs need to eat eat the gospel too. We need the gospel as well. And Jesus goes and, and heals and brings the gospel to even Gentiles. So what is this all about? What, what's the point here? It's that legalism focuses on the wrong problem. Legalism is, is focusing on the wrong things, like isolating children from public school, as if the problem is their company that they keep. Friends, when we attack the problem of sin with the wrong solution, we end up in worse condition. When we do not recognize that sin is a problem mostly of our hearts and not the world around us, we are closer to understanding our need for Christ. If you don't think that you have a sin problem, then, friend, you don't think you need Jesus. And Christian, if you have a low view of human sin, then I'm telling you, you have a low view of Jesus. We must attack the problem with the right tool. How much are you putting investment in external things. How, how, how much attention do you give making sure you check off your list every week? I went to church. Look, praise God for that. But church attendance doesn't do a whole lot of nothing to transform your life if you're just passively coming. Perhaps it's good works or good things. You just you look at those things, you say, yeah, that's going to clean me. If I just do good things, you know, God will accept me. Maybe it's just through your disciplines, good things like prayer and Bible reading. You just go down the list, just check off, check off. As if those things will change your heart. 
friends, those will not change our hearts. It's amount to trying to do laundry with just water. You need something more powerful to do your laundry with, right? If you're washing your clothes with just water, uh, you probably stink. Um, <laughs> right? And, and when we're using ineffective and wrong tools to fix human sin, we stink. Our need this morning is for transformation. And that is why we must have a robust understanding of human depravity. Like we read in our statement of faith. That man is utterly and totally lost. And without hope. Apart from Jesus. A low view of human sinfulness spreads into universalism. Look, if you think you can fix sin with any old solution, well, then you'll begin to talk like liberals and, uh, you know, all roads lead to heaven and that, you know, all these things. No, we must have these things. So, secondly, Jesus then shifts from the external to the internal. And he demonstrates the radical, pervasive depravity of the human heart. Look what he says. Verse 15. There's nothing that outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus, what do you mean? We don't understand this parable you've just told us. Okay, let me explain it to you this way. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, right? Because, I mean, think about it. When you go and you eat food, and that food just goes to your stomach. It doesn't go into your heart. That's sort of weird. You know, right? It goes in your stomach. And then literally there, most of your Bibles have cleaned that up. Um uh, Jesus is very graphic what happens. And I, and I think that graphicness is helpful to understand the foolishness of focusing on external things. Right? This is, this is just an anatomy lesson, right? And Jesus says, hey, here's the deal. And I want you to see it, verse 21. From within, out of the heart of man, comes these things. And he has this long list, and we'll look at him in just a moment. It's what comes out of a person that defiles him. Twice he says, emphasizing this. He uses this word heart. What, is it, what does that mean? What's that, is he talking about like your heart inside here? Your little, what's he talking about there? Well, in the Bible, heart is just a, is a word that's often used to talk about the human will. You know, it's not as very, right? So often in poetry, in the Old Testament poetry, the word heart is used. It sounds more poetic. Than, than saying, you know, your will or, you know, that didn't come off the tongue. But the heart, the heart of man, that is the will, your emotions, your mind, the thing, what, what motivates you and moves you to make decisions at your heart. So in Psalm 51, for example, David says, my heart, out of my heart I have sinned. My, my heart is broken, God. My heart is defiled, God. It was my heart that caused me to sin with Bathsheba. My heart, O oh Lord, and he says, cleanse me with the hyssop and I shall be clean. Purify me and I shall be white as snow. David recognizes. So, so this isn't just a New Testament concept. This isn't something that you know, Jesus is inventing here on the, on the fly. No, this is, this is rooted in an understanding of human depravity. 
But the Old Testament, just as much as the New Testament, teaches us that human hearts are depraved. Let me run through this quickly. First, notice the source of evil. First, notice the source of evil is the human heart. Jesus is emphasizing it's the human heart that is evil, right? He places it squarely with humanity, contra to other things we might use to explain evil with. Notice, secondly, that it is a universal problem. It's what comes out of the heart of man or the heart of people, the NIV. Verse 23, all these things come from within and they defile people, a person or, or people, universal depravity. We are all depraved apart from Christ. Before Christ, we are all sinners. Notice thirdly, that the evil or depravity of the human heart. Notice that it's the heart that is evil. So you see the source is from the heart, but I want you to see the whole heart is evil. So it's not only wide in the sense it's universal, but it's deep in the sense that, we could sing the song, but um, it's deep, right? That is, it's the whole heart. Just a little sliver of your heart is evil and the rest is good. It's your whole will and emotion. Everything is tainted with sin. As I mentioned last week, if you want something, if you want to read more like outside the Bible, something really good, go online or order, buy, whatever. Martin Luther, The Bondage of the Will. Martin Luther, The Bondage of the Will. He's writing in response to Erasmus in The Freedom of the Will. Erasmus had a low view of human sinfulness. Luther, robust, solid understanding. Sadly, Lutherans, Lutherans, the denomination, lost their understanding of what Luther is teaching there. But Luther, the bondage of the will, read that. You will walk away having a better understanding of your depravity. And that, you, that ability precedes belief. That is, you are so wicked, you cannot believe unless God changes your heart. So then Jesus gives us this great list, and I know you're a Baptist and you love lists, right? You love lists. I do too. They're helpful. And we see that it is out of the heart of man, in verse 21, come evil thoughts. Evil thoughts. So, so if you want to kind of picture evil thoughts, and then he hangs really two things from that. First, evil acts, and then evil attitudes. Evil acts and then evil attitudes flow out of our heart. Our evil thoughts begin and then we, we either act on it or we have attitudes about it. So let's look at them. Let's look at the list here. I'm using much, much of this is coming from uh, Kent Hughes and his commentary on Mark. Just helpful understanding of, of this list. But first, sexual immorality. In the Greek, pornonia. Sexual immorality. And this is, this is all encompassing of tons of different uh, sexually immoral acts. I do you want to make a note, too, as we look at this list, is that uh, most of our English translations don't translate these in the plural, although they are in the plural. 
And you might, well, why, why, why are they in the plural and not in English? It's kind of we don't really have plural thefts, murder. You know, murders would work, but but uh, uh, sexual immoralities. You know, you, it's like whoa, uh, we don't really talk like that. And so um, the meat, the point is that there is a variety of ways in which this is expressed, right? So the problem isn't homosexuality, it's sexual immorality. So you understand? The problem isn't adultery, the problem is something much deeper than that, right? That's just a manifestation of evil. All right, sexual immorality, theft, kleptomania, we get the word klepto from, murder, coveting, right? an appetite, for what belongs to someone else, coveting, wickedness, a heart, a heart really just completely equipped to inflict evil on any person. I thought that was, oh, isn't that vivid? An app, uh, excuse me, a heart completely equipped. You've got the the the, the equipment to do evil. You don't need to be taught how to do evil. You've got it. You've you've got everything you need right in your own heart. Deceit, to, to, to bait, to bait somebody, to, to, to deceive people. Sensuality, right? plunging into moral debauchery in an open defiance in public way. That's what sensuality means. Envy, an evil eye that watches another's possession. You see that. My attention's on some someone else's stuff. I want their stuff. It's mine. I want that. That's gonna be mine. I'm taking that. Slander can be blasphemy against God, or another person hurting, slandering intentionally. Pride, right? Pride, self-praising, and contempt for others. So it's. Pride isn't just merely like, I'm amazing, right? Pride is, I'm amazing and everyone else is not, right? It's both and, right? And finally, foolishness. And hear this one well. Desensitized morally and spiritually. Fool. Desensitized. If you watch enough TV, and I'll guarantee you, you're going to be desensitized to morally and spiritual things. I don't know how many times I've caught myself just like, like murder isn't a big deal because I watch so many shows with people getting killed. Desensitized to moral and spiritual things. What does the Bible have to say about this? Is this just Jesus? What does the Bible have to say about this? Romans 3 Paul puts together just a robust list of scriptures. I go here. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you want. Romans 3, verse 10. Most of your Bibles should have footnotes where all these scriptures come from. I just go here for ease of sake. All of these are quotes from Old Testament passages. Paul puts them together in one. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, you can't be more clear than no, no, no one, no one, no one. 
right? Not, not anyone. Not, no, not anyone. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What a beautiful picture of human sin. But is Paul just talking about someone else? No, Paul is talking about Paul there. Paul's talking about you there. He's talking about me. He's talking about every human that walks. We could go elsewhere. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We considered that on Wednesday night. Thinking about our own sin and how we are we're objects of God's wrath. All that flowing out of Titus 3. Titus 3, 3. For, for you, for we ourselves, he says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. Slaves, he says. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days, like, yeah, this is what we did. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. What a pervasive look at our lives before Christ. We are in great need today. But friend, brother and sister, there is grace in this passage. You probably didn't even see it. You probably just read right over it, glanced right over it. But there's grace. Look with me at verse 19. Since it enters not the heart, but the stomach, and is expelled. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus declared all foods clean. How is that grace? Jesus has the authority to declare that which is defiled and unclean and make it clean. God, through Christ, gives us a new heart. It's what we call regeneration, the big big Bible word there. Which means that we've been born again. That we were once this, but now we are that. Or as Titus says in Titus 3.5, you were washed, you were renewed by the Holy Spirit. You were transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You're no longer the same. And so what do we do in response if we're a Christian today? How do we respond to this grand message? We stand in humility, humble before God, recognizing that we are totally unworthy to be saved. Humble before God that He would save sinners. Rebels, thankful, Putting words of thanksgiving in your heart today. Understanding your depravity and understanding what Christ saved you from leads to thankfulness and watchfulness. Watchfulness. If, if you're a Christian this morning, I want to just encourage you to be watchful. 
Because you have been saved, but you are being saved. That is, there is still evil in our hearts. God is cleansing us, renewing us, transforming us. And we need to be watchful of the sin of our own hearts. Don't become a legalist and focus on external things. What people wear, what people say, what kind of tattoos they got on them. Don't be, you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's the heart of man. Why we see also in this passage the need for one another. This is why we gather together. This is why we live in a community with one another. Because we need people to help us see the sin of our own hearts. We are not experts on our own hearts. David said the same in, in, in Psalm 51. He says, God, I don't see my sin. Or in Psalm 19, David says, God, forgive me of even unknown sin. Sin I can't even see. We need one another to, to expose our sin. That doesn't mean we're running around here just pointing out people's sin. That means we're, we're asking hard questions. Like, Steve, how's your prayer life? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing loving your wife? How, how, are, how, how, how is this going? Steve freely confesses, oh, I've been, man, I've been struggling to read my Bible. I, I've been, been more worried about my job than I have about my relationship with God. And, and man, thank you for exposing that and bringing that to my attention. That's what we need. We don't go around, oh, Steve, I see you're doing that again. And, you know, you need, that's, not what I, that's not what we mean here. Friend, if you're not a Christian today, do you believe this assessment of your human heart? Do you believe that it's out of your heart these things come? Sure, you might not be running around killing people, but the propensity to do that is there. Do you understand your need for Christ today? I want you to hear this promise. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. <laughs> it's dead. Behold, the new has come. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be this day. Today. Today you can be whiter than snow. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. That is our confidence today in Christ. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Him, you too can be white as snow. Let's pray. Holy Father, we give you praise and glory for the work of Christ in our hearts and lives. Father, I pray that I and your family gathered here would understand more of our sin and our need for Christ. That we would see and abandon all hope of legalism as a means of a relationship. And that, Father, that we would give our lives in pursuit of holiness, that your Spirit would transform us that our song would be grace, grace, 
nothing but grace, grace that is able. It's your grace that is able to pardon us, to declare us righteous, and to make us righteous, to cleanse us. May that be our song today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.